Hey friends, before we hop into this episode, we wanted to just give you another reminder about a great project that just came out from Illinois Humanities. Got real love for IH, and Illinois Humanities has launched the Envisioning Justice Reaction, a virtual exhibition and activation kit that uses the arts and humanities to imagine a future without mass incarceration. Very important work. It opened a couple weeks ago on March 23rd and features work by artists, humanists, journalists, filmmakers, poets, musicians, educators, and activists. So if you like the scope of the work we do here, here's another opportunity to learn from, get activated by, and participate in movement here in Illinois and beyond. Find out more at envisioningjustice.org. Go check in. Boom. We're back. Just like we said we would be. Boom. <laughs> Here we are. Right back at it. I love that. I love you starting with a boom. Boom. <laughs> boom. This is Ergo. Uh, I'm Kiz. I'm Damon. And what we do is reshape the culture of our city and world for the more liberatory and creative. On this episode, we are bringing you part two of our conversation with the incomparable Myra Kwaja. Um, recommend definitely going back and listening to part one. Strongly recommend. In fact, if you've not yeah. heard it yet, stop, go back there. We'll, we'll be here waiting for you. Unless you're one of those like weirdos who likes to like start a six season end. show at season four. <laughs> you can't judge the, the viewings of <laughs> nah, your weirdos. You, you, you don't want to know what, what was being foreshadowed. You don't want to know the character arcs. What's wrong with you? You want to just like see after they've gone through some shit. I was going to put my parents on blast for starting a show in season eight, but we'll let it be. <laughs> this sounds personal, but we yeah. do go personal as well as as collective uh, with the amazing Myra. And we do want you guys to catch all of the themes and the threads that happened in the first half of this conversation to really be able to fully receive the context of what you're about to hear. But Myra's going to go further in just discussing her really, really important work, you know, some of her upbringing and how you know, how she thinks about her positionality and how her cultural and religious socialization informs the way in which she shows up and activates in this world and in this community. Uh, so we're really excited for y'all to keep digging in with us. We also give advice kind of directly <laughs> at one point, which doesn't happen very often. So Get if you're old. looking for some advice, I think it's good. <laughs> you know, you kids, you don't, you, you don't even know how it was. You, you don't know what you're talking about. It's good to yell at like unnamed invisible children near you on the radio. That's a good move. <laughs> I also imagine that most of the people that listen to this are older than us. So <laughs> <love that>. <laughs> <laughs> We're just calling folks kids. I hope you feel young again, folks. Uh, <laughs> all right. As Damon said in the intro to the first episode, there are some kind of challenging moments and themes in relation to Myra's work, which is very serious and heavy, um, specifically in regards to conversations around torture, police torture, international militarism, uh, and the effects of that on people's lives. Just want to mention that so that you know what you're stepping into. And with that, yeah, make sure that you... Check out the exhibit that Myra talks about at the DePaul Museum of Art, uh, connecting Chicago police torture and Guantanamo Bay that over a year she contributed research to. And again, if you didn't hear part one, we are also amplifying and supporting the Survivor Relief Fund operated by the Chicago Torture Justice Center, in which 100% of proceeds are redistributed uh, to the community of survivors of police torture, their families and families uh, who've lost loved ones to police killings. And so if you want to directly make an impact and contribute to those most impacted by the systems uh, that so many of us oppose, this is a great opportunity. All right, let's get into it with Myra. Bang, bang. Oh, man, I I, I want to be like time aware. Mm. And so I, I want to throw out all the things I'm feeling because I was really interested in this LSC thing and like so proud of y'all and so excited about it, but also understand that it can't be ideal and has to be really difficult and like sobering in some ways. So I had a lot of curiosities about that, but I also know that there's like contemporary work that we want to make sure that we we get to and discuss as well. And so I'm trying to figure out how to balance that or maneuver. Would this be a, uh, uh, if, if we, we had, had more time? time? If we had a little more time. If, yeah, if we had more time, I would really love to like 
dig deep into like local governance and the school system and like, yes. you know, because I think we idealize the notion of like, oh, if we just had people grassroots just taking over these boards or these things, you know, that's that's the path. And so I would love to hear just how power has been working in that space and how you how you feel. So that's a, if we have more time. I wish we had more time. And, sh- uh, and I feel like my other if we had more time, we would definitely talk deeper about the market box story a little bit more because that really means a lot to me. But want to kind of go into the work that you're doing now and a, a last kind of like if we had more time that's kind of in conversation with it um is the amazing exhibit that y'all did a few years ago on Haritha Augustus which we talked about a little bit in a bonus episode uh but was really like you'll listen to that like the experience was like wild and bizarre in ways it did expect but the actual like work and content was like so important and like I remember at the time thinking like oh you guys are gonna change the world like this is this is like some of the most important things I've ever seen. So I feel like that does then inform work that you alluded to or mentioned that's happening right now of connecting the Chicago Police Department to global like imperialist militarism and particularly how torture plays out. I would really love to hear like what are some of your exciting takeaways? How is it reshaping the way you show up to work? Uh, because that's a thing that I've in the last two years worked really hard to name more is that policing is domestic militaries. It's not a social service. And so in the way in which we think of militaries throughout time and space, so old King's guards or, you know, Marines or whatever, that's what a police department is. And so I do a lot of talking and when I'm like getting interviewed and people are like asking for like more evidence <laughs> or to say something a little bit more grounded, I always say, hey, go talk to Trina and Myra. Oh. Uh, like, I don't know how many times, like I've probably swung stuff your way that may have gotten y'all or just tell them like, here are the people to go like research. Uh, and so I'm really curious, like what you're learning right now, what are the connections? What are some of the things that are surprising even to folks that may like have an abolitionist anti-militaristic lens, like what is the connection between domestic militarism and forms of policing and global militarism and forms that are are more imperialistic in in nature? So, really want to hear about about the work that's going on right now to yeah, make sure. What, that we, what did we you What that. did you learn? What did you What did you learn? Is, in is my the, is the simple is the simple <laughs> like, question. How do I succinctly tie up everything? I'm yeah, what did you learn? Like three, four years. <laughs> um, I'll back up for a second before getting into militarism, though it does connect. One of the big ways that the Haritha Augustus exhibit has informed or shaped my priorities is one of the big takeaways from that forensic analysis was like, I think an obvious fact, if the police hadn't been there, Haritha Augustus would be alive today. Then moving into in, you know, outside of the Invisible Institute, being like, okay, if I'm going to be on this LSC, this local school council for one term, what is like the big thing that I want to change. And the truth is like Hyde Park Academy and many schools like it exists within the police state. The walls are totally white. There are teachers who very much care, but the way that suspensions, detentions, um, movement between classes, you know, three strike rules, like various things like that, it all feels very intensely like you are existing within like a mode of being trapped. And I knew that, you know, local school councils don't have that much power, but we were given the choice to vote out police officers. And that campaign was really, really hard because it was not like a mass campaign. There was Cops Out CPS that was a giant campaign. But I decided like I need to make my priority of like the thing that we win and we did was to vote out at least one of the police officers um, and use that money towards like ideally like a dean of restorative justice or ideally somebody that can like turn this um, suspension room into a peace room and just kind of work towards changing the culture. I am really proud of how hard that was and that we actually did win that. But I think something that was very sobering to learn was like the process of hiring and shaping that culture afterwards of what you do with that money is like hard to track and follow through because CPS is a mess. And it's hard to actually understand how much is that changes with the removal of one cop. Like you have one more cop and then you have all these other police like figures. So when we talk about like abolition of police and removing cops from schools, I think a really important question that we have to always be thinking about is like, well, who does that police get replaced with? And often I fear that schools 
will turn towards hiring private security. To what extent is that better? It might be a little better. Like they might not have a gun and a taser, but they probably will have a gun. Anyway, so those are like the the things that I'm like grappling with that to me are in the same conversation as like the Haritha Augustus dialogue. Yes, it is important to remove a cop from a situation where they do not need to be there. And also, how do we make sure that there's not all of these like stand in vigilante cops, you know? Which ties into militarism and military contracting quite perfectly. It really does. <laughs> so um, the big thing that I learned in the research over the past year plus, and this is being integrated into the Chicago Police Torture Archive, a piece of work that we didn't talk about, but I was the managing editor of, and Damon was super helpful with that, is learning about the ways that Chicago police officers are encouraged and incentivized and rewarded for um, taking off time to serve in the military or be private police contractors. And a lot of cops, like after retirement, just go into private security training services and they probably make more money there. Um, So a pattern that we found is Dante Servin, for example, is the officer who killed Rakia Boyd about 10 years ago. He resigned two days before his termination hearing. The termination hearing, of course, was like brought on by an incredible campaign to to fire him that Damon was a part of, Trina was a part of. And he lives in Honduras now, training the Mm. national police. (laughs) To this day, he is training the Honduras police and he proudly says it on his LinkedIn. Um, Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, Yeah. I don't think anybody knew it. And, uh, And he... Actually, shortly before he killed Ricky Boyd, he was in Honduras. So it's a relationship that he has to training international police. And I am sorry to break that news to you in this. No, way, no, I appreciate you telling me. I, I'm I'm just emotional and sad a little. Bit. Yeah, yeah. No, it's that's in the research that is in this exhibit at DePaul Art Museum right now, and will be in a forthcoming <sighs> book called "Remaking the Exceptional." Um, but unfortunately, Dante Servin is just a small example in this ecosystem of police officers coming to CPD from having been in like the Vietnam War or the war in Afghanistan or Iraq or officers that take leaves to do it. So Richard Zuli, who has tortured handfuls of people at Area 3, um, people who are still in incarcerated fighting for their freedom. Um, I don't know if Lethereal Boyd is out, but I know Benita Johnson is not out yet. Um, he took a leave of absence from 2002 to 2004 to be a senior interrogator at Guantanamo Bay. And the techniques that he used of like psychological manipulation were similar to the ones that he used in Chicago. Like one of the people that he coerced a confession out of was Lee Harris, who was actually his informant for a long time and like close connection. And so there is like an additional psychological element that Richard Zuli used he is in his 90s now. He lives in Florida. Um, but an outcome of this story is that the person, Mohammed Slahi, that he tortured, he is free and he has written a book. He wrote a book while he was in Guantanamo and the movie, The Mauritanian, I don't know if I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. that right, is about him. You can like read and see speeches that Mohammed Slahi has given. There's still 39 men detained um, in Guantanamo. But I think Richard Zuli is like the most concrete example. And though Richard Zuli is not named in the same lawsuits that like the Burge survivors cases where there is an overlap between Burge and, and Richard Zuli, younger officers have worked with both of them. And so I was saying earlier, I think maybe before we started recording, like the research is really depressing and upsetting. And also, I think really important because something to note is like when they come back from military service or military leave, they often get promoted and are, you know, lauded as having defended democracy. The research was very disturbing and sad and isolating because like, you know, Damon is someone who knows the Dante Servin case really well. And for Damon to not know where Dante Servin is now, and of course you wouldn't want to know, um, but I think something that's very hard in the movement is we do have some of these like seminal cases very much focused on like, how do we get justice for this person who was killed or tortured or what does justice look like for the family? And I think 
something that there's very little, I mean, appetite for, and I don't have anymore. I think the driving question behind me doing this research was trying to understand, like, how can somebody get to the point that they can commit such atrocities and they be so normalized? And trying to understand, like, you know, the theory, the working theory that Aaron Hughes, one of the co-curators who is a vet that organizes against the war and is an artist and teacher now, his theory was like John Burge was in Vietnam and like learned these techniques like the electroshock black box and brought them back to Chicago. And that is partially true, but something that is important to realize is like there is this cyclical nature, these circuits of knowledge between Chicago, New York, the Philippines, Iraq, Vietnam, Guantanamo, where Israel, right, that people develop and refine new technologies of violence, whether it be surveillance or physical violence, and they're exported through the military systems um, because they're in such close relationship to police departments. The line between those are very, very thin. And we're seeing that now with police departments having received equipment from the military, shipping it off um, to other places. But also the deadly exchange campaign that JVP was involved in, which is directly not just equipment being shipped, but also like, you know, literally like skill sharing yeah. <laughs> between militaries and, and police departments. Right. And it's things like Honduras. And uh, there's another officer, Aaron Cunningham, that trained officers in El Salvador, private security forces. And I think it's important to realize that it's not like, obviously, I th- I would struggle to talk with any of these people that we're mentioning. And it was also sobering to realize, like, there's nothing extraordinary or exceptional about the type of violence that these officers can think that they can get away with, because all of the messaging that, you know, someone like John Burge or Richard Zuli hears growing up is we need to catch this criminal at all costs. Like, you need to get someone. And for example, when Andrew Wilson, one of the well-known like first survivors of torture at the hands of John Burge, um, rest in peace, he was forced into confession in the case of a very high-profile murder of Chicago police officers. There was such a political drive and like media narrative around like we must catch the people who killed these police officers that multiple people were caught and coerced into giving information. And so when we have this like economy of needing to criminalize people that is very much fueled by media narratives and political narratives and deliverables in some way and deliverables that it's like we will get someone. And I mean that you see this in Guantanamo, almost everybody at Guantanamo like never had a trial. Right. Like it was just like they literally were just rounding up people off of like the weakest of tips or maybe even none at all. Like the evidence is so flunky. You can just like the 780 men who were there. I don't know if we know the exact number of how many were like found innocent, but the vast majority like never had a trial. And so we have been taught from a young, young age, like catching a criminal or putting someone in jail is to like put to rest this like issue or this crime that we had. And that is the same type of psychology that feeds into like, yeah, I'm going to like coerce these confessions and get these confessions and then I will elevate in my career. And I think that we in the movement haven't totally figured out a way to talk about like the people who are driving this militarizing force of the police, I don't think is best explained in a famous case like Jason Van Dyke, you know, going to jail and getting out super early, like is very upsetting and very frustrating. But I think something, for example, like the Watts cases or the torture cases where there have been masses of people who have been coerced into confessing something as a part of the war on drugs or as a part of like just this criminal enterprise. I think that is more indicative or illustrative of like how the Chicago police and U.S. military is like its own economy, that there is such a demand to keep feeding. I still haven't made sense of like, why would John Burge be the way that he is? Because I'm always trying to make sense of people and like understand. It's like the empath in me. That's not that I'm trying to empathize with the torture, but like try and understand like how do people get to that level? How do you stoop to yeah. that? Um, yeah. I share that a lot. Like not only cops, but even like 
white apartheid terrorism of like the South and Jim Crow. Like there's so much documented story of the impact of it, but there is almost no record of like who planned these pickup truck raids. How do you train someone to be prepared to lynch or to maim or to burn down a house? You know, I think that's where, you know, the police culture and that culture are very comparable. Um, And it's not just a curiosity. I think it's really important in terms of healing from it, resisting it, but even how do we like on the larger human project transform? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and it's it's kept from being possible with passive voice, right? So it's this person was arrested, this person was killed, this person was lynched, yep. not mm-hmm. this person arrested someone, not this person tortured yeah. something, not this person lynched someone. Abused and, children, yeah. Right. One thing, so I did go to his LinkedIn when you were talking. So, in addition to Honduras, he also was an advisor in Mexico and in Kosovo. Those are the three places on his LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just think about, yeah, the the like the U.S. deemed battlegrounds, and they, you know, that's the Kosovo thing is right after the war there, and then Mexico in the middle of the war on drugs, and that it's just, oof. Um, oh yeah, I'm 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 really activated and want to kind of check in on it, but before, just want to like do a responsible thing or also like provide opportunity for other folks that may be activated hearing this and, and want like some of that helplessness, just a way to like immediately work towards addressing or working towards repairing some of the impact. Uh, a way that you can contribute right now is to the survivor relief fund that the Chicago torture justice center operates. It's a mutual aid fund uh, in which a hundred percent of what is raised goes directly to survivors of police torture, the Chicago police department, as well as families uh, who have lost loved ones to police killings. Th- this is something that emerged out of pandemic as mutual aid was coming more to the forefront and needs and emergencies felt like compounding. And as we are maybe approaching the other side of the tunnel, it's clear uh, that the need is deeper than pandemic or COVID shutdowns. Um, And so uh, we're at a time right now, if folks are listening in March or April of 2022, we're at a point now where the the fund needs to be replenished. Like the the actual need of the community began to recognize this as a resource. Um, And so right now we're really not only looking for contributions, uh, but folks that are interested in signing up to be a, a monthly contributor or donor. Um, and so, you know, as little as 5 to $10 uh, a month would help. Uh, but there will be a lot more information on this and trying to revamp and expand that resourcing. But if you're listening now and want to do anything uh, to address this multi-decade uh, impact, this is a way to directly give resources uh, to survivors to take care of, of, of a multitude of needs that are coming up because not only were folks tortured, but then they were incarcerated for 20 and 30 years. Um, and so not only the physical and psychological trauma, but then just all of the compounded political oppression and, and economic exclusion and trauma of being a longtime incarcerated person. So we'll have a link in that. Please, please, if you can contribute uh, to the Survivor Relief Fund. Uh, but now back to me a, a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't, it makes a lot of sense, but I am surprised by how emotionally activated and triggered I was and how much it brought me back to that work, to Lori. This is, you know, Lori was the one overseeing this process. And so this is the beginning of her political career. And so even the offense of her being a mayor felt like a lot of our elders and particularly the media just ignored that work. Like there was cameras every month in these actions and in this resistance. And that was not a part of her narrative at all in running for election. Uh, but but deeper, you know, Dante Servan was a unique figure that not only took Rakia Boyd's life and destroyed the love of a family, but after that threatened people, pulled out shotguns on, on protesters from his home. Yeah, yeah. fuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know. The incarceration piece is, is complex as abolitionist, right? And like there takes a lot of nuance. The getting fired piece and the pension is complex. But to hear one, and I don't mean to be silly, but one just that he's a better weather really pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, secondly, <laughs> oh, but, but secondly, you know, the fact that this is not incidental, right? That globally there's a, a market similar to what I just said about Lori that like, being a part of this process doesn't disqualify you from public office. The fact that the global apparatus 
places, replaces, has such a need and demand for the most violent and the most efficient and the most flagrant officers. One just proves my point, uh, but two feels really daunting and heartbreaking. And so I think the the healthiest place I can get to is I want to like just uh, excavate your imagination a little bit. Don't think about like organizing capacity or what we can actually do. Just like you have spent a lot of time with this depressing information. And so in hearing that, the the only like optimism or dialectic that I can find out of it is that these horrible experiences then concretely connects disparate or separate communities, right? So if Dante Servan lived in North Lawndale and now lives in Honduras, how do then the Hondurans and the you know folks of the West Side see that connection deeper? What what does solidarity look like? Because his physical life like shows that this is again to our conversation earlier, like this this is global. Um yeah. And so how can the communities impacted in ways that are so far away? How could you in like your highest ideal imagine what solidarity or connectivity looks like? Because that's the only way we can really address it. Yeah, I think in my highest imagination that I believe is real and possible, we have to dismantle militarism and the military economy. And the only way to do that is we can't just only work locally we have to have international connections and build international solidarity. And I think if I had all the money in the world, I think that looks like um, traveling and building like really strong connections and um, collaborations between like a community in Honduras and in North Lawndale. I think you can draw a map of all the various places that can and should like be able to know each other and work with each other on like joint campaigns an organization I care a lot about if people are feeling like kind of hopeless hearing some of this stuff because I think international militarism sounds like it's at such a large scale, but it is relatively recent. Like it's within the past century, century and a half. Um, it's like, damn, I wish they didn't get along still. Like what did, right. y'all, what did, y'all, what did y'all leak up? What did y'all click up right. like this? I thought there was beef. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I forget the exact stat, but like the U.S. has the most military bases in the world. And I do think that Americans have, I don't love using the word responsibility, but we do have a power in our ability to affect other countries' politics because our elected officials or our U.S. military bases, our purchasing power affects so many other countries, which is why, one, we need more people in the U.S. to believe in the power of like boycott, divestment, sanctions. Um, again, and not just against Russia. Yeah, Not just against that, Russia. Yeah. It's funny how like, that's uh-huh. a, a, Israel, a useful yeah. tactic now. Yeah. Right. Now people understand it. So maybe. <laughs> they're like, they're not closing Papa John's. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I know. There's all, they didn't close the other Papa John's either. And you weren't so mad about that. But yeah. And there's still a McDonald's at Guantanamo, you know? Right. So I would recommend everybody who feels activated by this because it is very upsetting. Like I get chills every time I talk about it is finding a political home or a community that is interested in building towards that future of international solidarity and real relationships that can have coordinated movement towards dismantling U.S. military conquest and imperialism. I love dissenters. It's a relatively new organization. It's focused on internationalist youth organizing against militarism and imperialism in all its forms. Our friend Asha, like I said earlier, is a co-director. And it sounds kind of trite to say like traveling is very powerful, because traveling can look a lot of ways. But I do think the more you can understand, meet people, the internet is super powerful. Finding friends and relationships in other countries that are impacted by the same dynamics, and in some of these cases, the exact same people, I think really has the power to grow into communities that are very strong. One thing that has been hard to see is like the ways that people in the US really only learn about themselves. And just about the U.S. Like, and so much of that has to do with the way our social studies curriculums are designed, like in high school. And so in my highest imagination, like there would be a joint campaign between like Honduras and people in Chicago to essentially like get rid of the U.S. military base in Honduras. That's what I imagine. So before we have to go launch that campaign, I want to talk about the the exhaustion of this work for a second, mm. um, because we all mentioned it several times and you mentioned it like before we started recording and here, like the, the weight of sitting in these truths, mm-hmm. which is also part of why 
a lot of people, if you don't have to, don't. I mean, it like, doesn't feel good. It feels terrible yeah. to think about the fact that he's in Honduras getting paid to train, you know, fascist militarism. So I am hoping that some sort of, whether it's rest or peace or something, is part of what this work has or will look like for you. Because whether it's communally holding a lot, ideologically and informationally holding a lot like this is heavy stuff to carry and to um it's one thing to acknowledge it it's another thing like i said to go elbow deep and knee and wade Mm -hmm. into the into the information into the knowledge into the the truth of it how are you doing with that uh with that weight these days not great (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I'm doing okay. And I don't mean to like alarm anybody, but I think a lot about the fact that like this May will be my six year anniversary of working at the Invisible Institute. And I feel like I have learned so much and continue to learn so much. And also I'm struck by the ways that the attention or like the activation of people like comes and goes and waves. Like I'm sure you guys relate to this where it's a cycle. Like there's a high profile killing. There's a lot of protest and movement. There are demands. There's shift in public perception. Like you have way more people who are like understanding abolition or discussing it, but then you have the backlash of the state and corporations and that can feel very oppressive. And depends on what day you ask me about how how far the past two years have like brought us politically or like how far back it feels sometimes. I'm curious if you guys feel like we've been losing or gaining, but that's not a helpful binary also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I think to, to, to that, like, yeah, the, the um, and I, I want to say this without like disparaging any like institutional political campaigns that are important, but I do think the electoral moment is past. You know, at least in the space that I was in, we were aware of it as a small sliver and a, a closing window as soon as it opened, uh, particularly talking about like this 2020 moment. And so like now we're coming out of, I don't even think we're like, I think we're so desensitized to the slap down or to like the, the counteraction or the counter revolution. I mean, we heard a lot of talk about Joe Biden at the State of the Union, like with this very anti-defund, very like Joe Biden-esque thing. Like, you know, he sucks and people kind of like don't take him seriously, but he is, you know, the head of state. And so like at the State of the Union, it was formally declared and gives cover for every Democrat in the country. So the only reason, because there was not sincerity, because it takes political courage and our political apparatus is not designed for courageous action. There was only the moment of public pressure and this like sense of historical shift that like, you know, the defund thing was like a real budgetary moment. You know, now I think the the value is it as a movement builder. Now we have that as like a historical documented time. You know, the consciousness transformation is irreversible. You know, folks seeing mutual aid and pod mapping and, you know, restorative circles more as like a need of what they have to get into. Um, more people calling themselves organizers. I think our movement grew in ways that like generations will be able to see. The work that has made possible hasn't even started yet. Um, but for folks who are trained to only see politics through what elected officials agree to and pass and compromise on, that, yes, is over. And we're probably, I don't want to say further behind, but I think the responses, here's what I will say is really uh, powerful. Everybody didn't become abolitionists, but resistance to police violence increased and expanded. For example, for people who are in tune, listen to this, like know the Chicago news cycle, like the case of Anjanette Young, a middle-aged black woman whose house was raided um, and she, her, you know, her sanctity and her body and her privacy was just violated in really obscene ways. That has been happening. There is nothing new about that. You know, maybe now there's also social media to disseminate it differently. Uh, but I think the reception of that story and the fact that that was a, a crisis for the political establishment and the mayor and like they had to do all these bullshit lies around it shows that that type of story registers deeper. You know, they're used to just be, well, cops got a raid, you know, like how's they going to be cops? And so the fact that there's even, you know, 
no sh- no shade, but maybe slight, but like loving shade to like the legacy of like the NAACP, right? But like there's like, oh, we're going to step up on this or, you know, some of the more just moderate kind of just church going folks were like, this is not something we can stand for. And I think pre-uprising, pre-George Floyd, pre-seeing also all these young people get their head bashed in, the apathy or the passiveness would have sustained. So yeah, I don't think it's getting voted in in, in, in any major municipality anytime soon, but I think our movement and the public consciousness has, has shifted and grown. Yeah, and I think the fact that he had to, in the State of the Union, say it, make the declaration, <laughs> means that all of a sudden that's part of the battleground. You know, yeah. that in some ways it legitimizes the argument. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, it definitely shifts yeah. the, the terrain. Yeah, like we're not going to defund just as a course of action. <laughs> like that's not what we do, as opposed to this is a statement of policy that we're making. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought that like that was more. Like, I didn't expect him to, but I also didn't expect him to talk about it. Yeah. So that, you know, that's a kind of a, you know, it's not a Pyrrhic victory. It's something, but it's, it's not a win. Um, Mm. Yeah. And it's hard. I think, you know, some of it geographically, like not living in a place where the policy pushback is happening directly here in the same way, like all these anti-CRT laws and the, like, Yes, Florida, and these are not very far, but it feels different. And I think I'm having to challenge myself to sit in them a little bit more and pay a little bit more attention and in how they're happening, that there has been this activation of local school councils in a different way, of getting people involved in the like anti-state state actors don't have to be only be elected folks, right? Anyone <laughs> who is trying to dismantle you know, fights for liberation can be an anti-state state actor in the various ways that we're allowed to participate in the state. You can go shout down the mayor at a city council meeting over bullshit. Anyone can do that. Right. <laughs> um, and then that can be, you know, politically mobilized. I don't know. I'm still kind of thinking that through. I think, like you said, Dane, like the the work that will come from two years ago hasn't started yet. And I think I'm just starting to even understand what this blowback moment is is yeah. the backlash mode. like it's a really in some ways it's really hard to look in the eye yeah i mean i do think ultimately we will win i i still genuinely feel that not even in sort of like an affirmation way but i think for me the blowback has looked like how much of covid money not just in chicago but like across the state across the country has been spent on policing and prisons like in champagne I recently learned there was a long multi-year campaign to not build a jail in Champaign, Illinois. And because of COVID money, they were able to build it. And one of the lead activists on it, James Kilgore, told me recently, like, yeah, if not for that COVID money, they would not have built that jail. Like, we had won that campaign. And so things like that. And then also just like the political rhetoric of like, because of defunding the police, like this thing is closed or like you know, the statements that Joe Biden says. But I do think that them having even those words in their mouths is like a sign that like it has entered the playing field. Like, yeah. But on a hyper local level, I do feel like we do have wins to point to in terms of like people moving into the movement. And then I have seen a lot of people find like structural based organizing homes. Like I think in Chicago, you can point to like the win at General Iron. I think you can point to people seeing LSEs or the movement to push out cops from their local school as like something that people have taken so much more seriously now than I think they would have pre-2020. So on any given day, I'm like, oh yeah, we're winning things that are concrete, but like want to win bigger (laughs) now. All right, I have to intervene. I have to intervene. Mm. I just want to make a point of, of, of what just happened and oh. then ask, ask a follow-up question. So Daniel asked a very, a great question about like you and like your, <laughs> like, and like burnout and like your energy. And we started talking about political organizing and campaigns and prisons being uh-huh. And so, and I was right there. Yeah, I was I ready to go too. And so I, I want to reel back to that, I want to one note how that happened as like a microcosm of our lives, but then also to like not prod, but to dig deeper in that, I'm gonna offer some gas as well. Of there's a deep admiration I have, not just of like your personality, but of like your capacity and acumen 
there is like a skill, a coordination, and like a, a an effectiveness with which you work that like yeah, I look up to or I admire. And so I parallel that to like, you know, I'm a, a communicator. I like have high emotional intelligence. I can facilitate space. And so I find myself, as we were kind of joking about, like, even when I say like step back, I find myself over facilitating, over holding all of the trauma and all of the hurt and all of the emotional relationships of everybody around the space. And like before the chips end up falling, I'm like in some circle and like a thing that's like, making my stomach hurt, but I'm good at it. it. Even as I'm doing it and like, oh, this is, this is like diminishing me. Like, I still feel like, oh, I'm doing this well. And I'm probably doing this. And this might be part of the problem. I'm offering something that if I did not, it would go a different way. You know, I see you as such a high functioning, high capable person, but you're naming burnout, fatigue, some of just like the human impact of this, but there's going to be so many things come your way, so many things asked of you, so many things that may, are not even asked of you, but you just see it and like you end up stepping into it. Like, I don't even want to fucking do this shit. You know, like all of that <laughs> coming from the place of like, damn, Myra's on top of it. You seem to do it with grace, but my imagination of work is that is that it's all tiring. And so, mm. yeah. Yeah. How do you balance like what you want to do and what you're able to do versus like your well-being? Yeah, I'm I'm working on that balance of existing between like 110% or like zero or like negative 10%. What was your um, GPA? What was like your, what was your oh, report card? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't no, know. No, 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 no. It was, it was less than a 4.0. I think I graduated from UChicago with like a 3.6. I didn't That's graduate amazing. I was just talking about high school. Oh, I don't know what my my GPA in high school were, was like fake. It was like over like, four because they calculated yes, it. Yes, yes, They yes, calculated yes. in a way where they were like, oh, if you take an AP class, it was like times mm-hmm. whatever. And you took the AP yeah, class. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but the thing is, well, one, I don't know All if right, it's like undiagnosed ADHD or whatever, but I remember like writing papers. So you can imagine this, this torture paper was like pulling teeth. Like it was so painful, but I also like knew that I wanted to do it well. And, you know, I think a quote many of us in our community look to is this idea of like hope is a discipline. It's an action. It's a verb. And so for me, the way that I stay like hopeful or like moving towards the future that we want is by continuing to move and continuing to do work. So like I know that the Haritha Augustus stuff was like very traumatic. And also I felt a relief and a release and a processing by sharing it with people and like bringing you guys into the space and talking about it. And I do feel relief and hope that now that finally the exhibit is up and the book will be published, like I want to do a similar thing of like bringing in friends and people and sharing the exhibit with them. Seeing Anthony Holmes, a survivor in there during opening day, posing with his quote, signing a wall. That was like, okay, this is going to feel like I poured so much from my cup. There was nothing left. And I I do think sharing things and being with people, like being with people for me is like what fills my cup. I am definitely an extrovert. So I think more of that. And then, you know, in my like artistic work and otherwise, like a friend recently told me that I need to give myself enough time to just think which is funny because I think I overthink a lot of stuff, but just to like <laughs> not do anything and just allow my imagination to move past various ideas and various demands on my time so that I can actually understand what it is that I want to do versus like often it feels like we're in reaction mode in Chicago. And when the difference between what you can do and what you want to do, those two things don't necessarily match up at all. Oh, yeah, you know? for sure. So I do want to see the next couple of years like. Maybe it's a restructuring of my time. I'm not sure. But I think something that we were talking about identity and how I am in Chicago, something that I've struggled with, but I'm proud of is that I do think a lot of people just identify me with my work. And that's because it's like secondhand nature to me to just, you saw the way that I skipped past a bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. and just talk about the work versus myself. Because part of me is like, why do I need to share myself? Like, is that going to be interesting? The work is important and interesting. It's a great work. Thank you. <laughs> and I and I think the work is important and I'm I'm proud that I get to do it like full time. But 
sometimes I'm like, oh, who am I if not for the person that's like investigating police misconduct and like coordinating a bunch of stuff? Because that's not, I don't know, that's not a sustainable way to be identified. <laughs> <laughs> trust, trust me, I know. Like, I can't think of myself that way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like the the like kind of cliche self-help quote of like, I'm not a human doing, I'm a human being. Like right. when all that stuff stops. Who is left? <laughs> right. Like what? It, what is here? Um, yeah. Yeah. I could imagine just to project for a second as someone coming into a space and trying to like provide value and contribute mm-hmm. to something that you didn't that you're not from. I know for me, like that was a lot of why I jumped to that human doing thing all the time and like being associated with my work and trying to prove my value and contribution to even exist <laughs> was mm. through that. Mm. And then at some point you go like, well, one, it's unsustainable burnout wise. And two. Those are not human relationships. Those yeah, that's capitalism. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, shit, they, I'm my work now. Um, I'm my labor. Uh, and so it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. But I think, like, at least for me, that was a huge part of it was, like, my presence in and of itself is, one, not necessarily valuable, and two, potentially harmful. <laughs> and so I have to kind of offset that with the, the doing to offset the being. And and at some point it's like that math just doesn't add up. I appreciate that. I think it reminds me of a question that I love. It's a, I think it's like an icebreaker question that I have heard from Trina, which is like, what would you be doing if your people were free and you didn't have to do the work that you're doing? I love this one. And for me, I would absolutely be acting and doing like fun theater stuff, directing shows, like writing silly short plays and so just thinking about like, how do I more regularly, doesn't have to be professionally or like careerist, but like, how do I just incorporate the things that always just make me feel that sort of like high energy buzz of like, oh, this is truly just like fun and self-serving and not about excavating some of the worst of human history. Um, and human now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right. It's human currently. Um, so... I think incorporating more of that is in my future. That is what I will be like doing for myself. Um, still working on the whole like don't do anything and just think it's very hard for me to like not be doing something. <laughs> but I think maybe replacing some of it with things that pour more into my cup. That are for you. Yeah. Yeah. Dame, what would you say to that question? I've asked you that before and you like like years ago and you like were like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I, I think about it as like, what would I be doing if I wasn't in movement? But even a lot of that would still be Black folk empowerment. You know, it would just be like more middle of the road, moderate, doing it for the community stuff. And so some of that, like, I don't want to let go of. Like, I think regardless of conditions, people should be communally centered. But yeah, I think very parallel, like, and I'm in a stage now where I'm like owning and activating and living in and like excited to like shift what the forefront of how I exist in the world is as as just an artist, creative person. So yeah, leaning deeper into creativity and performance and intellectual work. And like both of those I can be insecure about because like artists and performers are selfish and arrogant and narcissistic and like a lot of it is actually trivial if you if you get to the to the base of it. Um, Sometimes, not always. Often. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, the stuff that we like, but even like the good stuff, like, you know, I, I'm like, I'm very like rapper focused on how I study pop culture. And so just even the like, oh, I'm, I'm going to tell my story. It's like, yeah, cool. Okay. But like, <laughs> what's that do? You know, like, oh man, I just want people to know what it was like. Yeah, I don't want to read your fucking diary. So that like can be can be trivial. Um, but then also like intellectual work can be so elitist and inaccessible and, you know, pompous. And so in, a, in addition to like having this kind of like movement, we got like, you know, boxed into activist organizer in people's imagination and like trying to navigate or negotiate that, um, you know, how to facilitate space and educate and perform creativity and intellectually in general you know mm. so i would love to just like think deeper about like stupid shit or a smaller thing yeah like, i love the know, parallels like, i'm feeling a, you a very deep heavy. dive like i need to stop asking myself like is this important 
Like sometimes it's like, no, it doesn't need to be important. Just like make, you know, publish a silly essay that is not about how much you hate Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> is, it, is it interesting? Is maybe a better question. Like, yeah. am I am I interested? Is it feeding? Like, is it fun? Like, it, yeah. I, I also dislike James Harden a lot. They're like, it's not important, <laughs> you know, but like I could make some feel, really cool points. I would feel good. You know, I could just say something about that and like do some cultural analysis through basketball and like talk about James Harden's wackness. And Lori might be the James Harden of <laughs> Don't do that to James just Harden. Out here, just out here traveling and forcing fouls and making up rules, being yeah. obnoxious, complaining, being rude, bad just, with her teammates, just the club terrible in the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't dress well. <laughs> Hair has some issues. It's all know, over yeah. the place. <laughs> but never apologizes. It's never their fault. No. Oh my God. That's so funny. Oh. I would say for me, just to answer the question also. Oh, sorry. I meant as you asked no, it, I meant fair. to end with that's asking right. you. That's that's what I was supposed to do. I apologize. That's fine. No, we're, we're we've been in this long enough. I knew you were thinking it. Uh, I would love to be like a baseball coach. Oh Whoa. yes, I want to. I want to coach like high school JV basketball. We we should start like you a, guys can just do a that baseball now. basketball. No, I know that could have that could definitely happen now. I thought you were gonna um, be a filmmaker. Yeah. Ooh, no, that's, the, that's that's the now though. That's oh. not that's not if I could. Oh, just, I, yeah. I don't want to make movies about. I think something being so expensive and difficult to make, I'm like, you can't do it for a stupid reason. Mm. Like, even though I love stupid movies, it's like, if I'm going to work for three years on something, like, I'm not going to make Jackass. Like, let Jackass make Jackass, <laughs> mm. you know? Oh, I um, would, like, dream of making, like, an Abbott Elementary-esque. Like, not even to, like, imagine uh, yeah. that I could be on that level, yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I would love yeah. to work on stuff like that. We should. Yeah. We have a. We have a very good workplace sitcom idea that I'm not going to talk about on the air that you might be interested. Let's talk about in. it. But you would be primed record. for. Yeah. Oh, oh, so oh let me know if you need someone in the writers' room. We, for it. Well, we don't you know do? how to write it, so we could use some help. Yeah. When we um, stop recording, let me know. Absolutely. <laughs> Again, a project you can hear coming at some point in the future. Um, coming 2024. Yeah. So I think I think the baseball coaching is one, and then. The thing that was the what got me into all of this media work, I just wanted to talk to rappers about rap and musicians about music and like share what I heard and what it made me feel. And then I learned about the world and I was like, oh, fuck, this is way more important. And so yeah, really our show was about was about rappers that go to protest and then we was like, oh shit, we got to really, about protesters. We got to really rap, talk about and this. And then it just became about protesters. <laughs> you can go back. You can go back to rap. Yeah. We're, we're doing uh, it. We're, we're figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad to hear you just asking those questions because, you know, when you were talking about the like classroom stuff that was your entry point and how much fun it was to play like that and those being the happiest years of your life, you know, in this work. It's like there, that's the... If I were your life coach slash writing your biography, I'd be mm. like, that's the piece to hold on to is like if what feels like a fond memory and not a traumatic memory is what you hold on to, I think, is like a, a guidepost. That and the values is how I try to think about it mm. is like, what are the moments where I felt joy and what are the things that I know to be true for me? Mm. Listeners, feel, feel free to jump in on this train like. You know, oh, yeah. write it, do a little voice memo. You know, yes. if your people were free or if you, if your world was how it needs to be already, what would you be doing? Because I feel like so many folks who like tune into us are in that same like honorable, like responsibility driven, you know, facing hard truths thing. But that's tough. And so give yourself that space and maybe maybe we'll do something with it. Or if not, you know, do it for yourself and send it to somebody. So it encourages you to do it and we, we'll receive it. And it's not a selfish question to ask. No. And it's not a selfish question to then choose to learn from and have that be a bigger part of your life. Like, you know, I think a lot about the difference between commitment and indebtedness. The way I think about my relationship to movement where it's like, I'm committed to this. But so often that becomes this feeling of like, you know, if I don't do it, no one will, or no one will do it as well. Or I owe this to a person because of it, or I owe this to a community. Like, yeah, no, this is, this is supposed to be filling cups. Yeah. Like, if you feel that way, you need to be building other people's capacity because that's not sustainable. Yeah. And it's a tough one to believe that you're supposed to still be a full human <laughs> when 
when you're yeah. someone with a brain that's thinking about what you can give all the time. But it is it doesn't whether it's right or wrong, it just doesn't work to not do it that way. So 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 yeah, do your thing, people. Oh yeah, this is Damon's new this is Damon's new thing here. This is one of my catchphrases. Can you describe we're also this is gonna be a two part episode. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're, creeping into, we're we're um, deep in it. Yeah. Yeah. So this, you know, it kind of comes out of like some of the bigger plans of what we're trying to grow ergo into or, you know, the, the entity we're trying to create that would hopefully, you know, house ergo and then, you know, the ecosystem that we're really trying to help nurture is what is the purpose of media? And I love having this or naming this to you as somebody who's thinking about it in such kind of like unique and transformative ways. You know, one of the, one of our etymology joints is like media is the plural of medium. And so, you know, the platforms are just a midpoint, right? And then we as folks who like curate these platforms are really just in the middle of a conversation. And so, so much of mainstream institutional media is a midpoint to turn people into consumers and drive them towards capitalist consumption, right? Like that's why the news exists. That's why sports exist. That's why MTV, BET exists. It's why YouTube exists. Like everything outside of like the direct subscriptions, even though then you're just consuming that media is is not about your entertainment or about your development of your humanity. It is about you, one, aligning with the power of the state, first and foremost, and like more specifically doing that as a passive, apolitical passive consumer. And so we have, you know, a very different audience that from a early standpoint, like we even want to say we don't want an audience, like we want a base of people. Uh, Which was also a cute way to acknowledge that we didn't have that many listeners. <laughs> it's cool because we, we have both beneath the surfaces like people as a base and not an audience. Right. So it's cool that right. you guys and, do that too. And so, you know, we we don't want just people to be passively listening to we can use this example to like, oh, Myra is so great and like shout out to the Invisible Institute and like now I know that and like I feel smarter. It's like I want someone to hear this and to do their thing. And so their thing might not be media in data science and public engagement, but like back to like the, you know, abolition work and like, you know, the project we're doing right now called One Million Experiments. Like we need people to do work. We have a century, if not a millennium of creation to do in order to build the thing that that we, we say we want and that we need. And that requires a bunch of like gardening and a bunch of projects. And so we want folks to be able to, you know, Similarly to how I shouted out the Survivor Relief Fund, which I just was able to do again subliminally, like direct folks to be able to don't be a consumer, contribute your resources to mutual aid or to grassroots organizing or become a volunteer or hear this, take the lessons, take even the human turmoil of like, you know, learning how it's not easy to do things. But take this, don't be passive. Don't just, you know, sit on the train or like take your flight and like, oh, that was cool. Now I know something like do your thing, do the thing. That taps back to the question of if it's not just like in the shadow of oppression, what is your thing? And then I think like the humanizing second part of that is like, okay, now that you have that answer, how can you incorporate that into what you're doing? Right. So like the TM work that, that you and Trina were doing, for example, like, and it's unfortunate that that was more like at the beginning of the tunnel and like now we need to figure out how to relocate it. But <laughs> the fact that that brought you joy mm -hmm. was the type of creativity that you would want to be doing. And you were doing that in the space to get people to talk about voting for senators or for a tax reform or for a mayor or for city council. You know, th that may feel mundane or taxing, but you were able to to do your thing in it. And so trying to take that advice myself and not just do the things that other people ask me to do or that like I can do because other people around me help make it happen. But to anyone hearing this and hearing anything we've ever done, like that's probably the biggest takeaway of what our impact hopes to be is that we push, propel, help mobilize and even potentially organize people into doing the thing and supporting the things that are already being done. What's the thing you would want to do if you didn't have to do whether it's this work or your like job, job. on the table work, right? <laughs> What's the thing you would want to be doing? And then how do you do that thing in contribution to movement is, is the question. So we'd love to hear your answers also, like Dame said, share them. Um, whew. Yeah. This was wonderful. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we also have never really just like given advice. To audience? <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's not really a thing we've ever done before. That's funny. Um, I'm but surprised. These, these, <laughs> these two episodes are going to get us right to our 300th. So I feel like we're getting a little, uh, we're getting a little ridiculously, uh, <laughs> not not pop, but like we might actually know a couple things now. So there might be a little bit more of that. So thank you for shepherding that era in with us. I'm honored. 
to be in the first 300. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, there are a lot of people in Chicago. So it doesn't sound that good when you say 300. There's actually so many people. But it's out of 3 million. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mama, I made it to the top 300. Is there um is there anything you want to make sure we talk about before we before we call this a day? Find a political home. I don't think we ended up finishing it, but that idea of burnout I think has a lot to do with like the pacing of the way that our mobilization happens. I think it's really important rather than seeing like activism or organizing as this like all or nothing in the streets every day that we saw in summer 2020 like just encouraging people to seek out a home like you know, there's like Coco and Not Me We and Stop. And those are all South Side examples. But, you know, something I learned from Damon and Christiana in 2020 was like, get in where you fit in. Like, you don't need to wait on people's permission for it. Like, people will tell you and help you figure it out. I think it's really important for people to not feel like, oh, I can't be an activist because it requires summer 2020. Like, that wasn't a realistic picture of like how to sustain <laughs> anything for the future. So um, that'd be the one thing if we're in the the mode of giving advice. Yeah. There was this uh this quote that I read and shared a couple weeks back from Jackie Germain that I'm going to read out because it, it speaks to that a lot. She said, I know I sound like a broken record, but the best advice I can give anyone at this point is to invest time in a communal space off social media where you can nurture your questions, push your politics, and ground your principles alongside people you aren't afraid to be wrong in front of. It doesn't need to be in person and it doesn't need to be dozens of other people and they don't all need to be your best friends. Just find people who you can work on staying politically disciplined with, rigorously grounded, and constantly growing and interrogating alongside one another. If you take political work seriously or endeavoring to take movement work seriously, try to find people or comrades or peers to build and grow with off Twitter who understand, and I cannot emphasize this enough, that you can be politically disciplined without being self-righteous. Mm, that's how I feel about you guys. And I know Trina does oh. too. And that's how we feel about you two. Yeah. Pal. That's, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh. All right. Before I get to the last thing, just one last uh, droplet of gas. Which is just appreciate you appreciate the kind of kindness and compassion and all the little ways and big ways that that comes through that like I've received from you and that I see you give to other people. And like it is seen, it is appreciated. Thank you. That means the world. Thank you. Yeah. I was saving my, my biggest one uh, for the end. Uh, but, you know, I want to shout out all the work, you know, all these campaigns. Market Box really means a lot to me. Um but on a on a deeper level, you know, we the show, our community, my, my family, me, we are still grieving the loss of, of Malika Lean uh, in in tremendous ways. Um, and so this past year, my sister, his partner, and mother of of, of his son, uh, came to me and wanted to do something for his birthday in ways that were beautiful, but also like heavy as I'm you know grieving. Uh, and I reached out to you and. Mm. No, we can't cry at the end. <laughs> um, Why the hell not? <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much for the um, the way you showed up, the way that you took that on. Um, and then we all got COVID the day before. <laughs> couldn't make it. <laughs> and, um, and just the, you know, in starting to say it, I'm realizing I'm struggling to like locate all the, the vocabulary of what that meant and how I, f- I feel about that. But um, it is immense and one of like the greatest gifts, you know, that someone could offer and really a- an act of love and community, even beyond the ways that we know. Um, and so thank you. Thank you so much on behalf of our family. Um, I-, I will never forget that. So thank you. Thank you, Damon. Um, if I can say one thing about Malik, I've been thinking about him often because not me, we, was just getting started with its South Shore Community Benefits Agreement campaign for housing protections. And this was last July or August. Um, I meant to call another Not Me We organizer whose name is also Malik, but I called the person named Malik in my phone without a last name. And our Malik 
like Malik Aleem picked up. And as I just kind of like launched into like the thing that I needed him to do, he was like, Myra, like, what are you talking about? Also, I can do all of those things, but like, what's going on? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, wrong Malik. But like, yeah, we're going to have this cookout to like start building community. And he was like, oh, Christiana and I were going to take the kids to like the beach today. But like, that sounds more fun. Like, we'll be there. And like, literally turned around his whole like plans for that day, brought his beloved dog and brought a grill and food and toys and it was so fun and he was so ready and down to like throw down in this campaign. And even at that event, there was like he and another friend, Kahari, like kind of intervened in like a situation where someone was like showed up and was like kind of causing some challenges and the gentle way in which he like stepped up and guided someone out of the space. Like when Damon describes like mediating, like it's a lot of that type of thing of like, how do you kind of like without an escalating, without like involving police. Like I always think about like who are the honestly often like male friends in my life that I can like rely on to perform a function like that in a tricky situation. And there have been times in the past few months where like I've really needed that or like people I know have needed that. And I like wish so badly that he was like just, um, you know, I mean, he is in this campaign with us in other ways. But when I think of like who I want, male friends and people in my life to aspire towards it's like to be like him um and so it was an honor to like be able to host this birthday party unfortunately without you guys that was so (laughs) that was the worst timing um but it did feel like thanking him for for that because I didn't get to thank him I appreciate that thank you it's a good thing you dialed the wrong number it is such (laughs) I'm so happy I did yeah Oh, okay. I think we should stop. Yeah. Love you. How can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? My Instagram, I think, is probably most helpful at Myra, M-A-I-R-A-K-A. Um, and then I link to a bunch of other stuff. So the Invisible Institute's website, btsurface.com, the Chicago Police Torture Archive.com. But yeah. Is there any dates coming up where folks should be looking out for the um, yeah the current yeah, exhibition? Yeah. So the exhibition, Remaking the Exceptional on the Connection Between Chicago and Guantanamo, is open at DePaul Art Museum from now until August 7th. And you can find information about that on DePaul Art Museum's website or also on the Chicago Police Torture Archives website or also on my Instagram. I'm seeing a two museum visit. We're going to hit that and the office experience back to that. Yes. Really align with each other. In tone. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> what would, what would you be doing if our people were already free? <laughs> the office experience. The office, watching the office. So there we go. <laughs> All right. We're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And, um, yeah, we'll talk to you on episode 300 coming right up uh, when we're back on the line reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more liberatory and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Thank you. Thank you.